Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, roses are red, my handbag is Gucci. If you want queer discourse, here's Christina Cotarucci. Slight staff writer and host of the Outward podcast joins us today. And I think there are a, a lot of people out there who are trying to create that sort of narrative of, yes, lesbian history, but also a history of queer people who who don't identify as women, but who would also fit into that sort of broader community. That's the challenge that we face as, as modern queer people trying to, you know, chart the future of the movement. We talk a lot about the power of representation on this show, about how it's important to see people who look like you, sound like you, and think like you. It helps you feel connected to community, to test out different ways of being, to feel like you're not some type of weird larva who's been hatched on a barren planet, the first of her kind. White people, straight people, cis man people get to see themselves represented in the media all the time. And they likely have strong intergenerational relationships with other straight white men. But if you're queer, it's harder. Not only are there limited examples of LGBT people in film and TV, but those intergenerational relationships are more difficult to come by. For one, many gay people of a certain generation live deeply closeted lives, often carrying their secret to the grave. Add to that the devastation of AIDS in the 80s and 90s, that most people don't have a gay parent or grandparent, and perhaps most awfully that trans women of color are much less likely to make it to an advanced age than the general population. As a staff writer for Slate, our next guest set out to record some of these histories before they were lost to time. Christina Catarucci, welcome to Woman 2 VK. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is a really fun little series that you have written where you get to interview LGBT people uh, who we might call elders. Mm -hmm. What was the idea for doing this series? So at Slate, we have a series called Interview with an Old Person, where one of our writers, oftentimes me, finds somebody over the age of 80 and asks them a series of pretty boilerplate questions that um, can sort of be adapted based on where the story goes. If you've ever talked to someone over 80, you know that oftentimes they have a lot of stories they want to tell. So for Pride Month and in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, we decided to focus on LGBTQ people. And the stories that we've gotten have been some of the most fun to record of, of my time doing this series. How many people did you interview for the series? I interviewed four. We have another one publishing today. Um, I've published three so far. The first was a trans woman who's in her mid-80s. We interviewed uh, a man who was at the Stonewall Uprising as a young gay man in New York. Um, he's 70. And yesterday I published one, um, a lesbian who used to be a nun. She lives in Marin County. And... She was a lot of fun to talk to, and I actually think the interview was almost more impactful for her than it was for any of the readers. It, it, she grew over the course of the interview, and really? she was somebody who didn't really had, hadn't been out to many people in her life, and so was very reticent at first to talk about personal details. But once she got talking about young queer people and young trans people today, and how important it is that they feel welcomed into the community, she said, "You know." I'm feeling like this is my moment. I need to be out. I need to talk about my life so that other people can feel more comfortable coming forward with their own stories. That's amazing. 
I feel often that I wish that I had stronger connections to LGBT elders, but do you feel like it cuts both ways? Like this woman who you interviewed, did you sense that she wanted to be more connected to young queer people? A hundred percent. In fact, after the interview was over, she asked me to turn off the recorder and then started asking me the same questions that I had asked her, like, when did you first know you were gay? And, you know, what did you first wear when you wanted to go out and be seen? Or, you know, what was your social life like? I think she, you know, she met the woman who would become her wife at a pretty young age. Uh, then she was in the convent for several years. So she didn't have a lot of opportunities to create a wide network of queer friends. And she has a lot of gay friends now, but I don't think she feels very connected to queer communities. She hasn't been to Pride in many years. She says she's going to San Francisco Pride this year for the first time in many years. But that conversation between people of very different generations and, you know, we had very different experiences growing up was pretty profound for both of us. And we had some similarities too. We both grew up Catholic, so had similar experiences trying to reconcile our identities with what our parents felt. But yeah, I don't get that opportunity very often. Yeah, th this woman, Melita Figueroa, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I was really surprised by was you asked her when she first had consciousness about a larger gay movement. And she was like, oh, it was probably when that thing happened in the Castro. And you were like, what thing? And she's like, Stonewall? And you're like, <laughs> that's in New York. Yeah. Were you surprised? I mean, to me, I mean, I don't know, to a lot of my peers, Stonewall is just this like seminal moment. There was like pre-Stonewall and post-Stonewall. And I sort of assume that anyone of a certain age who lived through Stonewall saw it similarly. Like, where were you when JFK was shot? But she didn't even know what state Stonewall was in. Right. Did you find that surprising? I was. And then the more I talked to her, the more I realized we've had very different experiences of queerness. And she had a very different experience of growing up as a gay person than did the man who was at the Stonewall Uprising, where he was, uh, you know, growing up in New York City, felt very connected to the political movements at the time, joined the Gay Liberation Front, um, was sort of radicalized at a protest where he connected with other people who felt like this is not just me, this is an identity, and it's also a, a political movement. Whereas she sort of, you know, lived in a couple different cities before returning to her home county. And I think that her experience of queerness was a lot more private. She wasn't out to a lot of people, not out at work, not out to her family ever, even though everyone sort of knew like, oh, this woman who you've been living with for 25 years, your friend, is probably something more. But for her, it was more about personal connections and personal relationships and less about a political movement or political identity. Another theme that emerges from these interviews, two out of the three either entered or contemplated entered entering a religious order. Um, yeah. Were you surprised by that? And why do you think that was such an attractive or at least acceptable path for our LGBT elders? Both of the people who I talked to who either considered entering or did enter a religious order said they thought it would help them suppress the, the desires that they were having, either in the case of Melita, you know, the, her desires to be with a woman, and in the case of Barbara Satin, the trans woman I interviewed, her desire to live as a woman. I think that there's something attractive about the discipline that a religious order gives you. And, you know, if you're forbidden from acting on any of these taboo desires you're feeling, there's no risk of actually acting on them. Both of them ended up deciding that that wasn't worth it. And, and I'm so glad that they did have the opportunity to explore their full selves. But it's actually a story I've heard a couple times from other LGBT elders who I've had the privilege of meeting in my life that, especially if you grow up religious, this is something you might end up considering when you don't see a path for yourself in traditional marriage. Right, right. Maybe I'm not going to 
marry a man and this is an acceptable outlet for me to become a nun. But right. I loved your follow-up question, which was like, wait, you thought by living <laughs> in a convent with a bunch of other women that yeah. like, this little thing would go away? That actually seems like the perfect opportunity to explore your lesbian exactly. desires. But, <laughs> I also loved Barbara Satin's comment about how the black cassock was just like, a little drab for her taste. Right. I loved her. And she, you know, chose the name Barbara Satin. And she said, satin is the fabric of my life. Um, that it was the first fabric she felt attracted to and made her feel like herself. And I just picture somebody like her dressing in, you know, the, a priest's uniform. And um, I'm so glad that she didn't. Clothing and fashion is sort of another thread through these interviews. You make sure to ask every person, what did you wear when you wanted to feel yourself or when you wanted to, um, you know, go out and be attractive to people that you were attracted to? Um, you yourself have incredible style <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, why did you why did you feel like that was an important facet to delve into? First of all, it was just a way for me to try to resurface some of these memories that they might have, because I think clothing and, and presentation can be really evocative um, points of entry for people thinking about their identities. Part of it was because I wanted to know how queer people found each other back then. Like, how did you know someone was a lesbian back then? Like, there are, it's, it, presentation and sort of flagging and the way people find communities, especially in an era where coming out to somebody, coming on to somebody who's not gay could be incredibly Dangerous, risky. Yeah. I wanted to know, you know, how they found each other. And also, when were they able to feel like themselves? Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. I mean, and no matter where you land on the gender spectrum, I think when you come out to yourself in your own queerness or your own identity, the way you present to others sometimes changes too. How did people find each other? What were the queer spaces like? Um, and how are they different from the queer spaces of today? So um, Barbara Satin, who came out as a trans woman in Minneapolis, talked to me about hundreds of trans people meeting in the basement of a gay bar. She loves Minnesota, has lived in Minnesota her whole life, and um, in fact taught me that Minnesota had some of the first trans rights protections um, and some of the first lesbian and gay protections in the country. But the, the idea of hundreds of trans people meeting in the basement of a gay bar today seems unthinkable to me. Hundreds of almost anybody, you know, any queer person meeting um, in a place that's not like a warehouse party seems right. unthinkable. That's what the internet's for. Right, exactly. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I really wanted to ask people, like, is there anything that you miss? I didn't want there to just be, and my editor, this was really important to him too, he's a gay man, and he's like, I don't want it to feel like there's just this linear sense of progress. We're like, well, now we have a bunch of rights, so everything is better. There are also some things that people miss about the way they met and organized back in the day. And I think the necessity, the sort of solidarity built out of necessity that those spaces created was pretty important for people mm -hmm. back then. There were also a lot more lesbian bars uh, back then than there are now. Right. Uh, listening to Melita talk about the sort of bevy of lesbian bars in Chicago and in Indiana made me feel really wistful because in D.C., you know, until recently, we didn't have a lesbian bar. Same as in San Francisco up until Which late last crazy. year. Zero for like five years. Yeah. There's a part of me that hopes we can learn from the good that, that these people remember, you know, 
not all of the reasons for needing to have a safe space like that were good, but I think that there's still a lot of good that can come from those designated brick and mortar places for gathering. Yeah, that that interview question that you asked Barbara about convening in the basement of this gay bar was super interesting to me because it sort of, it countered my expectation, right? Where in the past there were 400 people and then it dwindled down to a handful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, generally you think of the trajectory of gay gatherings of, you know, gay pride parades, et cetera, getting bigger and bigger. But actually the opposite was true for Barbara's trans community where they no longer had to go to a, a designated place to feel safe and to be able to live their life as they wanted to. And so there was sort of a loss of community at the same time as rights were being gained. Mm-hmm. And she also talked about the fact that it's much harder now for young people to get that sort of intergenerational knowledge sharing that was essential to their survival in earlier days and, and may still be now. But, you know, a lot of the older people who hold some of that knowledge aren't on the Internet and aren't engaging in the same spaces that young people are. So I think for all the good that the internet has brought in terms of, you know, queer people in rural spaces being able to find community, it does make it a little bit harder for people to realize the value in in in-person gatherings. Mm -hmm. This touches on uh, an incendiary and juicy article that came out in BuzzFeed (laughs) recently um, by Shannon... The Lesbian Cruise. Shannon Keating, yes, Mm -hmm. about the Lesbian Cruise. And it's like, it's a mighty tome. It's like a 6,000 word piece and it's a personal essay. Um, But she goes on an Olivia cruise, which is a cruise line for lesbians that was very popular in the 90s, I guess, and early aughts and has gotten a little bit out of fashion as has cruising in general. Um, But it touches on some of these dynamics of wanting intergenerational um, LGBT friendships and relationships and sexual relationships, um, but also there being a fear and tension about discovering that an older generation of lesbians uh, are, are turfy. Um, and I think that that's perhaps, I think it is unfair to paint an entire generation as being trans-exclusionary. When you talked about notions of gender or non-binariness or gender fluidity, how is that received by the people that you interviewed? All the people who I talked to were, I wouldn't say surprised me because I I also don't like to paint older generations with a broad brush, but um, they were all a lot more excited and open to talking about that kind of stuff than, than maybe I expected. I think because for a lot of people, even if they don't always know all the right words to say, they're excited to see young people embracing their identities. And honestly, I think for some older lesbians in particular who weren't involved in a lot of political organizing and lesbian separatism and stuff, the idea of accepting, you know, trans people into the movement and accepting that, you know, trans women are women and and that kind of thing isn't as radical and, Mm -hmm. and doesn't necessarily invalidate their identity in the way that a lot of TERFs claim that it does, or, you know, that not non-binary people are, are creating some, I don't know, uh, rift in the lesbian movement. And I think there are a, a lot of people out there who are trying to create that sort of narrative of, yes, lesbian history, but also a history of queer people who, who don't identify as women, but who would also fit into that sort of broader community. That's the challenge that we face as as modern queer people trying to, you know, chart the future of the movement. Was there anything that you personally, as a queer identified person, were hoping to get out of these interviews with people in their 70s and 80s? I want to think about my own future and think about how I can grow old. As you said at the beginning, it's 
a unique challenge as a queer person, you know, queerness is not necessarily something you inherit from your parents um, or from your relatives. And it's hard sometimes if you don't have personal relationships with with elders to envision your own future. That's part of what's exciting about it. You get to create your own map for what your future and, and what your communities and families are going to look like. But I think especially for some gay men my age and a little bit older, the people who could have taught them that have died. Um, a lot of other people are living alone and in isolation and might not feel comfortable still coming out. So I, I wanted to create a space where people my age could think about their futures and think about and respect their queer elders and learn from them, um, open up avenues for that kind of uh, intergenerational exchange. You've also written about uh, Instagram accounts, such as Kelly Rakowski's Herstory, um, LGBT history, that are surfacing our queer history in a very accessible format as we're <laughs> scrolling through Instagram. Um, talk to me about why these accounts are both so delightful and important. I love seeing my queer friends next to older pictures of queer people on Instagram. It's actually totally revolutionized the way that I think about my own place in queer history. And a lot of the pictures are from protests and demonstrations and confrontations. And I love reminding myself of the militants and radical politics of the queer ancestors who gave me the rights that I am enjoying and still fighting for today. But I especially love the pictures of queer people just hanging out, people who, who might not be named by the Instagram account or, you know, might not have ever been involved in political activism, but who, like me and other people of my generation feel compelled to find other people like them and to find deep bonds of kinship with other people like them. Um, and I actually found connections to my own life from the Herstory Instagram account. I wrote about this in the piece. My primary healthcare practitioner, a physician's assistant who works at an LGBT clinic in D.C., was in a picture from the 70s on the Herstory Instagram account showing other women how to use a speculum and give themselves a gynecological exam. That's she was so a wild. feminist health activist in the 70s. I had no idea. I knew she had worked at the clinic for a while, but this gave me a reason when I went in for my checkup to talk to her, you know, show her the picture and talk to her about it. And it um, ever since then, I've sort of been looking for queer history everywhere because it is everywhere. And it's often locked up in archives, which are often technically publicly accessible, but hard to access or, you know, take a, a lot of time to access. And this is so easy. And um, I'm just so excited for the potential of people confronting these histories in the easiest place where they could possibly find them. I'm reminded of the scene in The Watermelon Woman where um, the filmmaker goes to the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology, <laughs> yeah. or CLIT, and it's like there's just stacks of information, like in boxes, but you can't take photographs, yeah. and it's like hard to access that. Um, you, the plot of that movie is that Cheryl Dumb wants to find out information about one particular queer elder. If you were to conduct your own research project on somebody who it perhaps has been forgotten oh, by history or like question. mostly forgotten by history, is there someone who, who's, I don't know, who has your curiosity peaked? <sighs> um, there's, so the, the, one of the reasons why the Herstory Instagram account got so famous is because they resurfaced a photograph of a woman wearing the shirt, the future is female. Right. Um, and then, you know, a feminist and queer outfitter started printing the shirts all these celebrities started wearing it Hillary Clinton started using it like the Carrie Delevingne ripped it off oh, like, yeah. the whole thing <laughs> there was a whole drama about it um I 
while researching this article that I wrote, um, you know, and a lot of other people have done this too, sort of looked into the history of that shirt and the lesbian bookstore that started printing those shirts. And uh, I would love to know more about the people who worked there and the people who visited that bookstore. I think this was in the 70s. Lesbian bookstores are a thing that have disappeared in a lot of major cities. I visited one recently in Provincetown that has been around since the 70s, and it was like stepping into a portal in some ways. And I would love to actually be able to step into a portal and visit a bookstore like that and and hear the sorts of conversations that people were having about political organizing and, and what their identities meant and how they fit into the larger gay movement, if at all. I, I wish that I could be like a fly on the wall in a place like that in the 70s and 80s. I'm curious about if um, any of these pioneering gay and lesbian and trans elders who you talked to, it, did it come up at all how they view sort of our generation and people younger than us? Because often I think about, you know, the militancy, the protests, people who literally put their bodies on the line so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have mm -hmm. today. And I'm like, do they think that we're terribly superficial? <laughs> or are they just sort of happy for us? Is there is there a prevailing attitude towards younger generations? Every person that I interviewed had a little bit of a different take on it. I think, um, I wouldn't say anybody said, you know, they're taking it all for granted and everyone's so silly. In fact, I almost tried to like lead them into saying something like that. I was like, you know, do you think, do you look at people nowadays and think like, oh, isn't it also like, why aren't they appreciating this? But I think in general, people felt so gratified to see, you know, younger people feeling safe to come out, people charting their own courses in gender and sexuality but also recognizing, every single one of them recognized that the fight is far from over. And nobody felt you know, the way I think a lot of people feared some would feel when marriage equality became the law of the land, which is like, all right, cool, all that's done, done. All yeah, set. equal now. <laughs> the, the man that I talked to, Jeremiah Newton, who was um, president at Stonewall, he did talk a little bit about you know, what might the future look like in 100 years. He thinks in a hundred years, everybody will feel fine with any, you know, sexuality or expression of gender. Gosh, I he, hope so. He thinks more people will be not gay and lesbian, but, you know, somewhere, you know, queer or bisexual or, or, or another pansexual or a, a type of sexuality that hasn't been invented yet. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot less, if my few interviews are any indication, there's a lot less separating us from them than I even thought going in. As we mentioned, it's hard to find icons of an advanced age mm -hmm. or LGBT. Um, and I think about this especially in terms of style and maybe gender presentation as well. Are there any older LGBT icons who you look to, I don't know, personally, as, <laughs> as a way to age gracefully but in keeping with your own, I don't know, personal style and gender presentation? I don't know if that question makes sense. but like, It does make sense. I'm trying to think if there are any old people that I look to. I definitely love looking at queer celebrities and spend a lot of time looking at queer celebrities. Your eyebrows show that that is true. <laughs> One of my style icons is Sarah Paulson, who's not old. She's mm -hmm. older than me, but she's not old. And she's an incredible queer woman who loves a puff sleeve, which right. I also love a puff sleeve. Right. But in looking at a lot of these photos, I have gotten some haircut inspiration. Um, people were just really charting new territory when it came to haircuts in the 80s and 90s. And uh, I, I might just take an old picture the next time I go to the hair salon and tribute to my elders. What are you thinking? I love a mullet. 
I've mm. never had mm. the guts to go for a mullet, but I've seen so many incredible queer women rocking mullets in the 80s and 90s that I think uh, it might be time for me to embrace that tradition. I think they're very on trend. Yeah, they yeah. are. We sort of have the same hair mullet. right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's bring let's resurface the mullet. Okay, it's a deal. Great. <laughs> we'll book appointments. Another thing that I talked to this older lesbian about was a, uh, about butch and femme roles mm. and how she very much rejected them, as does uh, one of my coworkers who's a couple decades older than me. You know, whenever I like talk about butchness and feminist because it's something that me and my friends talk about a lot or, or in general, you know, gender presentation. She's like, I get hives even hearing people talk about that because I came up in an era where it was we were very anti-role and felt like these roles were sort of perpetuating heteronormativity. Sure. And Internalized toxic patriarchy. power complexes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I think a lot of the people today who I know who identify as butch or femme very much reject those, you know, butchness or feminists as um, prescriptive roles and more as like a way to subvert those prescriptive roles. Right. Yeah, that was super interesting in that article or the interview with Melita mm-hmm. um, because she positioned the butch femme dynamic in opposition to feeling equal right. with her partner. She was like, no, 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 we we're don't equals. do that. We feel like we're equals. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's a different read <laughs> yeah. from one that I have. And I think that was a very common perception at the time to hear my coworker, June Thomas, tell it, and she was very active in, you know, lesbian activism in, in the 70s and 80s, it was, there were almost two schools of thought. There were, like, the people who were butch and femme and the people who rejected that because they were more progressive than that or something right. like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, I would like to read more about sort of how we got from point A to point B. Right, and there's so much, like, class dynamics that mm-hmm. is wrapped up in that as well. Um, here's a question. My friends and I do something called Secret Butch, Secret Femme, which is if your gender presentation is more butch, like what's your secret femme? Like I'm really good at sewing or my girlfriend's is that she's the little spoon. Um, and so what's my secret butch? Is yeah. What what's your asking? secret butch? I kill all the bugs in my house. Mm. Um, it's, it's a role that I didn't choose for myself, <laughs> but it's a role that I've embraced and it actually does make me feel very strong. I also think I can be um, my partner who is more butch, She's going to be so happy that I said this on TV. You're welcome, Deb. It can be very, like, uh, hard candy shell, soft, mushy inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I have maybe a harder candy shell than she does. Got it. (laughs) Christina Cattarucci, butch destroyer of bugs. Yep. (laughs) Um, So you had the excuse of writing this interview series to go out and make elder queer friends. How do I do it, especially <laughs> as we're talking about the death of uh, lesbian bars and spaces where perhaps an older generation might come to hang out? How do I go about finding my queer friends in their 80s? Great question. Um, I found a lot of the people who I interviewed through organizations for older queer people. So um, Jeremiah, the gay man who I interviewed, for instance, is involved in SAGE. Mm-hmm. Um I can't think of what that acronym stands for right now. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show before, but it's this amazing organization that sort of supports elder LGBT Mm -hmm. populations. And they actually have the opportunity, or they offer people the opportunity to host or attend intergenerational dinners. 
I haven't actually attended one yet because I've been so lucky to be able to interview a lot of elders on uh, my website, but it's something that I want to do, especially now that I've had the experience of talking to several LGBT elders in a very open and honest and vulnerable way. Um, I'm excited to try to forge some more of those friendships. I also think uh, going to LGBT events that happen in the daytime, um, a lot of the people who I talked to, you know, are not going out to clubs and parties. And, right. and I think that that can also, it can be hard to find even friends your own age at a club or a party necessarily, <laughs> right. depending on your social style. So, you know, festivals, concerts, the, the kinds of things that people of all ages might attend. If the people I talk to are any indication, I think there are a lot of folks out there who are more open to making younger friends than, you know, we might imagine. Uh, the Herstories account that we talked about, Kelly Rakowski also created the Herstories Personals account. Yeah. I wonder if maybe there's another spinoff that's like an intergenerational friendship. Like date. Oh, yeah, would that's that a great cute? idea. I don't know. If somebody could make that, that would be great. Somebody could make that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Christina, thank you so much thank for you. talking about intergenerational queer friendship and queer elders with us today. Thanks, Mackenzie. This was really fun. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to make friends with a queer elder. Also, please review Woman To Be Cam iTunes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 